This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Lee Dumoulin. And I'm Yannick Mayer. And for our first topic of 2017, what is our topic for today, Yannick? The past, present, and future of macOS automation technologies. Oh, wow. And I heard this topic is going to be pretty big. Oh, yeah. I've been working on this for the past two months. Actually, more than that. And uh, there are a lot of words in my notes today. Good. And since... Uh, We've been uh, on a hiatus for the last two months. I think we have shit ton of follow-up to cover. So let's get started. Let's go all the way back to episode five. Uh, <laughs> for once, it is not episode two. Uh, so episode five on streaming services. We were talking on that episode about music streaming services. We were comparing them at certain points to uh, movie streaming services like Netflix. And we speculated, like, why doesn't Spotify have its own record labels and all that stuff to make original music for Spotify and all that stuff. Um, Ben Thompson's exponent podcast is really good in general, but episode 101 is sort of the spiritual successor to our episode five. So if you're interested in that kind of discussion, I would greatly recommend you go check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Next up, follow up on episode 35, jumping 30 episodes forward. Uh, that was the episode where we talked about the state of Sony game platforms and sort of what was coming with PlayStation VR and all that stuff. Uh, it was quite a while ago, so a lot has changed since then. Uh, but I only mentioned this because on my way to Japan, I had the chance to play a PlayStation VR headset in the airport at Toronto. Ooh, uh, right. I forgot about that. Yeah, so I played ARMS, which is apparently one of the most disorienting games for VR newcomers. And it was actually pretty good. Um, the controls for that game are particularly confusing, so I don't think it's necessarily a good game to try out uh, as your first game. But I really wanted to like try one of the more immersive games that you could try on PSVR. Um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it because, I mean, by now, most people who actually are good at gaming commentary have tried it and have said way more stuff than me and have played way more games than me. So you probably know about VR if you're interested in it. But uh, my main impressions of the headset is that it's quite comfortable. Uh, the displays, unfortunately, it's sort of obvious that they're lower resolution than what you would expect. But It's not too bad given the price and the accessibility. And this is relevant to us in particular. Uh, Gran Turismo Sport details were re released a little while ago that seem to indicate that not the entire game is playable in VR, but rather only a VR tour mode, which is a bit sad. I was looking forward to playing the entire game in VR, and I guess you can't really do that. One game you can do that in, though, is Resident Evil 7, which is getting crazy good reviews. And basically everyone is saying, you need to play this game in VR. If you don't play this game in VR, you are missing out on a bunch of good things about the game. I will uh, never play this game in VR. Yeah, me neither. I would die. Um, and, yep, yeah, that's it for VR. Okay, episode 44, Japanese home computers. Uh, since we recorded that episode, PC98 Fever is taking over the Japanese gaming industry. The, and I say this because Hiroyoshi Kano's third big visual novel, Desire, is getting a remake on PS Vita from Eldia, the same company who did Eve Burst Error R, which was another game we talked about on that episode. Um, so that is really interesting. Uh, LDA is a really strange company. I mentioned this recently on Select Button, where basically the company exists only to port Eve Burst Error R. It is very strange. Like, the name of the company is a fictional country in the game. It is very strange. I don't know where this company came from. There is no information about them on the internet, but I'm glad they exist. Um, and related to that, Eve Burst Error, Desire, and a couple PC-98 visual novels have recently announced they are remastering their soundtracks during 2017 which is super exciting since the original soundtrack releases have either become incredibly rare or don't exist, so that's good. Uh, 
you only had to wait 20 years for it. Speaking of 20 years, I went to the You Know 20, 20th anniversary event on December 26th, which was streamed live on Nico Nico. I make a cameo appearance in the stream for some bizarre reason, Ooh. and it is incredibly interesting to be forever engraved into a moment of You Know history. Uh, so that is really weird. Um, people were really concerned that the people who are handling the Yuno remake, which is coming out next month, uh, weren't going to do the work justice, and I left the event incredibly satisfied by their love and admiration for the original work. Um, and the amount of effort they put into remastering the soundtrack for this game is ridiculous. I mean, it ships on DVDs because it's high-res audio. Wow, and- okay, DVDs for audio? Yeah, I'm going to have like nine DVDs for audio, and then there's one of the DVDs that also has MP3 versions of everything that's on the DVDs, because who knows how to rip that shit. Um, But yeah, it's like, as lossless as they could get, like they built their own hardware to actually get the audio ripped as losslessly as possible. It's crazy. Um, I don't want to speak too much about it, uh, because I already have talked about it too much. Uh, one last point though, you know, is getting an anime. So the game that I have been telling people that they should play, except there was basically no way to play it because it was only in Japanese, uh, starting soon, uh, we don't know when, probably next year, there's going to be an anime. So the work will be more accessible to people who speak English probably, uh, presuming that there's going to be a localization for the anime because there probably won't be for the remake. Next up, episode 45 follow up. That was the episode where we played Tom Clancy's The Division. Have you been keeping up with The Division news? Not really. Uh, the only news I've seen recently was regarding the last extension or patch, like the... Right. I've... Okay. Yeah, so, well, I'll talk about the patch in a little bit. First of all, there's going to be a movie about The Division. I don't know if you remember this. What? I've yeah, there's going that. to be a Hollywood movie of, a, of Tom Clancy's The Division. Uh, they have announced the director that is involved with the project, uh, Oscar-winning director Stephen Gaghan. Uh, so he's working on that. And Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Chastain are confirmed to be working on the movie as well. So that came out like in December sometime, and I decided to note that down. Patch 1.6, which accompanies the latest expansion, seems like a major improvement to a bunch of the game's systems. Uh, there are new Dark Zone areas, making the Dark Zone double the size. Fast travel between Dark Zone checkpoints. Uh, there are more events that uh, are more rewarding. And what's the biggest feature regarding the season pass? I kind of f- forgot. I think it's a, is isn't it some kind of infinite mode or something like that, or it's a survival mode? Uh, I have seen some of these streams on Twitch, but I haven't watched them. Uh, but yeah, I think there's like a survival mode thing. Yeah, I think that was the main, the big feature I was trying to refer like thirty seconds ago is that survivor mode because uh, a colleague of mine uh, is also a big fan of it and of uh, the, the division and bought it maybe two or three months ago something like that I don't remember time flies these days so uh, but yeah, yeah he's looking uh, he, he got a good deal on the season pass while buying the game I think it was like the same price I paid for the game including the season pass so uh, so he's kind of taking a look at those news and it was uh, maybe considering playing their survival more but I'm not sure but at least well, that's it- the last time I spent uh, we talk about uh, the division. Cool. Well, in any case, uh, it seems like a pretty meaty patch that improves a bunch of things about the game. But given the current political climate, I don't particularly feel like revisiting it. Um, Agreed. And by all indications, most people who are enthusiastic about the division on YouTube and Twitch have long left. Uh, so there is not much of a community left around the game. Just players here and there playing it every once in a while, uh, which is unfortunate for them. 
Uh, but we'll have a link to the full patch notes in the show notes. Episode 47 on Pokemon Go. Uh, one thing that happened in December is that the Apple Watch came out, and there was a confusing few days where 9to5Mac was saying Pokemon Go Apple Watch app was canceled, and I was telling you in our private chat, the Japanese media won't shut up about the Pokemon Go app, which is coming out this week, and I guess someone at 9to5Mac needs to work on their Japanese. Uh, so I've only seen a notification or two from the Apple Watch app in action on a friend's watch, but have you tried it, or has Tony tried it? Uh, Tony stopped playing Pokemon Go for a while, and Indian, I think, do I have Pokemon Go on my phone? Well, Let that explains check. it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, had, I had Pokemon Go for a while, but never ran it. It just, it was just installed. And it was like, one day I'll create the account and blah, blah, blah. So here's my experience with Pokemon Go. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, that's it for Pokemon Go then, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Episode 48 on video editing software. This has nothing to do with the actual content of the episode itself. It has to do with a sidetrack thing that I mentioned when we were doing the episode. And that is, I was saying that I was throwing around this idea for a video series where I play all of the Bandai Wonderswan games. And that project has since launched on YouTube. Uh, it's called Swan Song, And I'll put a link in the show notes and you can go watch. Uh, by the time this comes out, six episodes that I've done for the first six games released on the Bandai Wonderswan. All done through iMovie on the iPad. Uh, and I have a lot of things to say about iMovie on the iPad and about its bugs, um, but we won't do that now. Uh, I'll save that for a future episode. Episode 49 on the September 7 keynote from Apple. That was the keynote when Super Mario Run was announced, and that came out since the last episode as well. Uh, it's a $10 one-time purchase. There were lots of negative comments from various people about the first run experience and the UI. Um, the UI not... isn't that bad. Come on. I know people were bitching about no, it. No, I, I agree. Two months into the game's release, the UI isn't that bad, and all of the bitting about the game is pretty downplaying now, especially since the, I'm sure what you're about to say is the news that says that Nintendo made, like, what, 5% conversion rate for downloading the uh, DLC? To... Which is ridiculously good for a mobile game, except Nintendo was disappointed by the results because they were expecting more, which is sort of strange uh but i guess i'll make it up with fire emblem heroes which also came out last week uh which is a more traditional free-to-play experience i have been playing it a shit ton uh it is basically a fan service game for people who love fire emblem which is sort of me um and it's uh, it's sort of weird for these free-to-play games because normally free-to-play games just have like this story that goes nowhere and lasts forever because they want the game to last forever so you keep spending money um, but Fire Emblem Heroes has a self-contained story of nine chapters with five maps per chapter, and you can beat the story, and then you sort of have nothing to do, which is very strange. Um, like most uh, Japanese free-to-play mobile games, there is a gacha system where you can pay orbs to get random heroes, which makes people on the internet go fucking crazy because they haven't played mobile games in five years, even though they're all like that. Um, but it's super generous. The rates for the highest rarity characters are very high compared to the rest of the industry. If you are a Fate Grand Order player, you are probably crying because you have like a 0.8% chance or whatever of getting a super high rarity, whereas Fire Emblem starts at 3% and goes all the way up to 100% based on how, ma how much money you spend. Um, so yeah, uh, as a Fire Emblem fan, I feel that the combat lacks a little bit of depth uh, that I expect from the series, but... 
I guess this is the whole point of this game. It's a very good appetizer for Fire Emblem Echoes, which comes out in April in Japan and in May in North America. And there's going to be a tie-in event uh, that lets you basically play with the characters of those games in Fire Emblem Heroes uh, closer to launch. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I will probably keep playing Fire Emblem Heroes until no more content comes out for it or until Fire Emblem Echoes comes out and I'll just play the real game then. Um, I think it would be good maybe in a couple of weeks or a month to that we should revisit your uh, free-to-play games episode now that Nintendo is going full steam ahead with those free-to-play games. Uh, that could be an interesting episode, yeah. Yeah, m- maybe we'll have to wait for Animal Crossing to get released, but from what I heard, it, 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 and Nintendo announced it will get delayed to their next fiscal year or something like that. So it Well, it, the fiscal year ends the week after the Switch comes out, so that's in next month. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but still, it could still mean in a year from now. Even if they're like super late, so true. Hopefully, true. hopefully you're right. It means just like it was supposed to be released at the end of this winter. It's maybe more at the end of spring or during our current spring. So, hopefully, it's a, just a couple of months delay and not a year of delay. Cool. Next follow up episode fifty three. We're getting closer to the end uh, on the state of the Mac lineup. Uh, you have probably noticed, if you've been on the internet since December, that people are not very happy with Apple right now about the Mac. Huh. Uh, that's all I have to say for episode 53. Episode 54. (laughs) Uh, Whoa, that was your follow-up for episode 53? I thought. I mean, uh, you know where to find the complaining if you want to find it. Uh, just go listen to ATP. Uh, the last two months of ATP episodes have been on this subject, more or less. Uh, we don't need to talk about it here. Uh, we can just say, it's something that happened, and okay, my people are was, very passionate about it. My comment was more about that isn't follow-up, because that episode was about what is happening right now. So, okay, that's okay. We it, can it, continue. It didn't really explode much until December. Then it sort of took over the entire Apple commentary space, like, hardcore, because of the Mark Gurman piece and all that stuff. And people have lack of confidence in Apple with regards to desktop Macs. And there was the leaked memo from Tim Cook and all that stuff. There were a lot of things, including stuff we will talk about on this episode, which basically contributed to this lack of confidence in Apple that is much stronger than it was in episode 53, where it was basically, you made MacBook Pros with weird ports. And that was basically the extent of the complaint. Uh, episode 54 follow-up. That was the Tokyo episode. Uh, surprise, I came back from Tokyo. I have follow-up. Uh, <laughs> s- starting with Apple Pay... Uh, so Ooh. thanks to friend of the show, Spirit Snare, who bought a Japanese Apple Watch for his non-Japanese iPhone, uh, we can now confirm that you can pair a foreign iPhone with a Japanese Apple Watch and use Suica. And oh, uh, nice. we had previously re- reported that you couldn't actually charge a Suica on a Japanese Apple Watch from a foreign iPhone because you would require a Japanese credit card. But apparently that is false. So congratulations, Spirit Snare. Nice. Uh, so I guess your next Apple Watch will be from Japan. I hope the exchange rate is better by then. Uh, <laughs> one thing I noticed when I was in Japan is that certain locations have special Apple Pay stickers on the door, which say Apple Pay Suica only, which is very strange uh, because technically you can pay with Suica or NFC credit card payments with Apple Pay in Japan, but certain stores appear to only uh, support Suica, which I guess has to do with the equipment they have in their store. Um, 
but it's still kind of weird to see that distinction because you don't really see it here because we only have one type of mobile payment. Next up, SIM card follow-up. Uh, we used, well, Maddie and myself used uh, eConnect Japan, which is a fabulous carrier. Uh, you can buy their SIMs via Amazon in the US. You can install an app that lets you recharge and activate the SIM directly on your phone and offline installation of the APN. It is zero hassle. It is wonderful. Uh, one thing that we noticed, though, is that uh, Maddie has an American unlocked iPhone 7. And if you go to uh, apple.com slash iPhone slash LDE, which is the list of supported networks for various phone models, Docomo is not listed for his phone model, but he had no problem connecting to the LTE. So I don't know what is going on with Apple's list of supported networks on the iPhone LTE website, but it seems incomplete or they're leaving out stuff. It, it's strange. Uh, so... It is those the, uh, really strange regarding unlock phones because as far as I remember on that page, there's no category for unlock phones sold from Apple. So maybe I wouldn't know, I wouldn't understand why, but the phone you get from Apple might be different from the phone model that you get from your specific carrier. So that could explain why. So this is the case. Uh, depending which model you buy, you get a different SKU. However, it's not listed for either of them because the Japanese carriers are only listed as supported under the Japanese SKUs because they have Suica. So it mm. is very strange how they are laying out that page. I disagree with how they're doing it. Um, so research which LTE bands your carrier uses and look at the numbers. Don't look at the list of supported networks. That sucks, but it seems to be the way to go going forward. Okay, so you really have to manually go on that page and come because they list the supported bands on each phone, if I recall correctly. Yeah, except so you, you don't know which correspond to the carrier you're trying to connect to. Right, but in a way, you should be lucky and it, the, the diff from the American phone and Japanese phone should be mostly the same from that specific experience. Hopefully. Um, but, I mean, it doesn't necessarily apply to all Japanese carriers. It just means that Docomo works on that model. So, yeah, do your research. Uh, last but not least, for the Japan trip follow-up, uh, I went to a hot spring with Maddie. Uh, we went to Oedo Onsen Monogatari, which is what I recommended on the show. Despite my body anxiety, it actually turned out to be quite pleasurable, and I would not hesitate to return a second time. Outdoor hot springs in a near-freezing weather environment is ridiculously good and highly recommended. So definitely go. Uh, last episode, episode 56 on the Nintendo Switch. I Whoa, bitched. Before we go on 56, I do have some follow-up for episode 55. So go, go, go. Keep it this way. Uh, there was a couple of good big news regarding Swift and its community in the early January. So as... Most of the dev that you're using Swift may have heard uh, Chris Latner, who is the founder and the creator of uh, the Swift language, has announced that he's leaving Apple and he's leaving for Tesla. So um, he's also he was also generous enough to give two interviews, and one of which was to the ETB guys, and the other one was for, to the Swift Coders podcast. And oh, I, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, I listened to both, and they were really good which uh, brings me to the real follow-up is a lot of what is being discussed uh, on the both of those episodes you might say that they have become a bit redundant 
between each other but i strongly suggest uh our listeners to listen to both uh but my point is that i learned a lot regarding uh some i wouldn't say some internal decision but i would say some cultural decision regarding swift i think uh chris made it super clear that he's as passionate or maybe maybe not as passionate but he's super passionate about uh objective c staying strong and evolving with swift and all of that and that tone didn't peek through until i spoke with you and you were um quick to mention that that tone was present in the mailing list and then i and then i just realized that i should look at the mailing list more often but mailing lists are mailing lists so hopefully we'll get more of those like more public statement even if uh, swift is kind of out of the open so if we are able to get more glimpse at that cu- cultural uh behavior and cultural uh, mantra uh more easily than reading going through a mailing list i will gladly appreciate that but that was two great podcasts uh regarding uh, swift and chris lander And one of the things I mentioned to you about the mailing list in particular is I know someone, I think it's Erica Sedun, but I don't remember specifically, uh, does weekly recaps of what happens in the Swift Evolution mailing list. I think you're right because I'm, uh, you're not the first one trying to misremember or remember something about her and the mailing list. Yeah, I know she's very involved on the mailing list. I just don't remember if she's the one who's posting the recaps. Uh, but someone in the Swift Evolution community is posting weekly recaps of what is going on in the mailing list. And if you're interested in the future of language, you should probably go follow that. Um, uh, other follow-up before I go on. I'm super proud about it. I submit my first bug to Swift. Woo! Congratulations. Yay. And obviously, it's related to the follow-up we'll have in a future episode regarding our Swift migration at work. So uh, stay tuned for that. Cool. Okay, now for real, episode 56 follow-up on the Nintendo Switch. As you may have heard on episode 56, I was very unhappy that Splatoon looked like shit on the Nintendo Switch. And friends of the show, Digital Foundry, looked into this, and they said Splatoon 2 runs at 720p with no anti-aliasing. That is interesting. What I did not know is apparently Splatoon 1 on the Wii U also runs at 720p with no anti-aliasing, and I could just never tell because I wasn't sitting as closely to the television when I was playing Splatoon 1, than I was when I was playing Splatoon 2, where I basically had a 30-inch monitor right next to my nose. Um, so that doesn't help. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've uh, played a bit to Splatoon this exact week. I think it was even yesterday. And I've, I kind of misremember how, not bad, but how like blurry the graphic looks. I was like, I remember that it was HD, but they look weird and it didn't, yeah. wasn't able to point, pinpoint why and I think you just pinpointed why 720p plus no entirely I think. Yep. So 720p is the resolution of the Switch's display I think some people were caught by surprise when they heard this um, but it's possible that the game is just being developed to target that display first and then they'll support higher resolutions later again the game comes out this summer um, Nintendo in general hasn't really done aliasing uh, uh, anti-aliasing at all since the N64. Uh, if you remember, the N64 had hardware anti-aliasing that was always on and everything looked like it was covered in Vaseline, which was disgusting. Uh, and this uh, is why I hate the N64. Um, hey, hey, watch your words. Okay, okay. But I'm going to say something positive now. Not okay, about good. the N64, though. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, in distinct contrast to uh, Splatoon 2, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Uh, so, I only saw this. I, I couldn't play it, but I saw it from a little further. 
And I had noticed that the game was not running always at 60 frames per second. And this is because they were playing four-player multiplayer. Apparently on the Wii U, if you play Mario Kart 8 in multiplayer uh, at all, it's 30 frames per second. However, uh, in Mario Kart 8, two-player multiplayer is now 60 frames per second, and now it's three- or four-player multiplayer, which is locked to 30. Uh, so that that corresponds to what I've seen. Um, so my original critiques about... Uh, the Nintendo Switch hardware may not be as valid as I had thought. Um, thanks very much to Digital Foundry for doing the research on this. Um, also notable is Mario Kart 8. 8 has those improvements to the frame rate, but also has slightly improved graphics as well. And I'll include a link to their comparison video uh, in the show notes. Oh, I before, need to watch that. I yeah. Seriously, uh, but before we continue, maybe regarding your uh, comments uh, about the Switch in, and after maybe watching this video from Digital Friendly, what you realize is that the Wii U and the Switch are cl- starting to look closely like they have the same power out of them. It's like you still have the same kind of graphics, maybe a bit better graphics, but the improvement seems to be quite negligible. I would call the Switch a side grade from the Wii U instead of an upgrade. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Uh, before we go into the main topic, I believe we wanted to say something about the programming for oh, the next few months. Yes, we do. So, uh, since we are both back uh, from traveling and uh, also back in our uh, respective homes, we start to plan the f- uh, next coming months of uh, Limipo. And I wanted to talk a bit about that. So, obviously, we'll have, uh, as our usual schedule, about two episodes per month. Uh, which will be released every two, two weeks, so we won't change that. And for something new this year, we'll start to pre-announce the uh, next few episodes. And it won't be all of them, it's just that for this month, obviously we'll be talking about macOS automation, but in March, we'll have our big episode that we tease in January uh, over, uh, we tease on Twitter in January, we will have our Yuri on Ice special episode. So, yes, it will happen. Yannick and I will talk about this anime. Yeah, I think it's the first time we've actually talked about anime on this ep- uh, on this podcast. That's true. I nearly after... Wow, we haven't talked about anime in two years? I'm surprised. Yeah. Especially knowing you, I'm super surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes... Yuri on Ice will be our first anime on this podcast, and I would gladly invite our listener to listen to it and watch it. Um, let's just say that the scheduling is not complete yet, but it feels to be that it will be in two episodes. So the next Yannick episode should be about Yuri on Ice, and we should be able to confirm that at 100% in a couple of days. So stay tuned and obviously uh, follow the news on our uh, Twitter account. And in April, or in the March to May timeline, we also want to do another Limit Po Plays. And we will invite our listener to give us suggestions of games you would like us to play. And obviously have a fun commentary commentary of it uh, from us. Yep, preferably something that is multiplayer so we can play together instead of playing it each on our own end and basically just talking on top of it. Yeah, and I think... The restriction would be it's either PS4 or, do I dare say it, on the PS Vita? Uh, yeah, okay. Okay, uh, I think the 
your hesitation might be because multiplayer stuff on the PS Vita might be harder to find, but... Actually, or... no, it's just that my North American Vita is sort of dead right now, so I can't really play North American games. I can, Well, I can play them on my Japanese account, but okay. uh, it's not important. We'll figure it out later. Yeah, well, okay, so focus on the ps4 and if you want to be fancy or be like us to promote the ps vita that is dead uh you can suggest a ps vita game that i'm sure will be a ps4 port of the on the vita so it will be the same wow and that is it for our scheduling obviously i uh, will have a couple more episodes between those uh big pillars but uh we will give you more news when we have some cool so now that we've done our half hour follow up, we can go on to the main topic. I uh, I'll blame you on that. You've been teasing for a week that you have a shit ton of follow up. I'm like so I wouldn't say depressed, but I was so already exhausted about it. But it went well, so that's okay. Okay, so this is an episode I would have rather done back in November or December when it was a little bit more topical. But I think I probably benefited from waiting and thinking about the topic. Uh, as long as I did. Uh, so this entire episode about macOS automation is prompted by the news that longtime lead of user automation technologies at Apple, Sal Goyen, was laid off from the company after his position was deemed no longer needed. And uh, this episode is not going to be shitting on the user automation technologies team. I know you were very worried when I originally pitched the episode that I was going to spend two hours bitching about the user automation team. Uh, which would have been terrible. And it was originally going to be like that, except then I said, wait a second, that's not productive. Uh, especially because, like, there was a huge, like, there was about a month of back and forth debating on Apple blogs about what was going on in this. And I really disliked some of the tones that people were using to talk about it that I basically decided to turn away from attacking the team who did stuff, because I think that in many ways they did their job. I just disagree with what their job was. Uh, and I want to talk about the technologies themselves and explaining what they are, how they feel in practice and how relevant they are to the Mac today, and then speculate on what should happen to those technologies in the future. Now you might say, well, what technologies, what are you talking about? Um, so I want to focus on what's called the Apple event suite or what most people would just group together under the name Apple script. Um, so I'm going to be talking about AppleScript, Scripting Bridge, AppleScript, Obj-C, JavaScript for Automation, and while explicit, while not explicitly a part of the Apple event suite, I want to talk about Automator. Uh, so all of these technologies are various macOS automation technologies. This episode is going to be relatively developer-centric. Um, I'm going to try to explain things in a way that maybe power users can understand, but at a certain point, we're going to be talking about code stuff and... I can't save you there. Um, but still, like, in the word user automation, it has the word user because those technologies are for users and less for developers. They are used by developers, they are used by power power user, but in general, some of them are targeted to normal users that just want to make things uh, be less of a burden to do on a computer. So it should be... Uh, You'll need to understand some basic notions, but I'm sure pe most people that... Uh, play with computers and use computers a lot, we'll be able to uh, fully understand it. And at the very least, if you are a power user, you will learn a bunch of things about the Mac that you never knew. Uh, oh yeah, I, there's a couple of technology you named that I remember seeing a couple of uh, like dubbed uh, title sessions that I've 
heard or maybe seen some news but never used myself. So I'm sure that's going to be pretty interesting. So before we talk about all those technologies, we need to talk about what lies at the foundation of all of these things. And I'm going to start with Apple events. Uh, first of all, this is not in my notes, but Apple events is a terrible name for 2017 because if you search for Apple events on Google, <laughs> you only get Apple keynotes and nothing about Apple events. So that sort of sucks. Um, but yeah, so the suite of technologies is named after Apple events because they are at the core of making the suite work. Apple events are the plumbing that allow uh, applications to talk to each other on the Mac uh, using universal high-level concepts. So traditional operating systems have these notions of events like mouse down, mouse up, uh, all of those things. But you don't really have events that apply to concepts that are universal to most applications like open document or print file. And Apple events exist for those types of things. Um, but very few people actually interact with Apple events directly. There's this richer, higher-level model that lies on top of that called the Apple event object model. And if you're familiar with the DOM on the web, it's sort of the same idea, but for native applications. There's a root object that represents the application, and then you can navigate the hierarchy of all of the other objects in that application, whether they be documents or windows or controls or menu items or anything in the application. It's represented as an object in that object graph. Now, there are two basic types of objects uh, in the Apple event object model. There are nouns and verbs. Nouns are basically analogous to classes in object-oriented programming. Uh, objects that are nouns can have elements, which are collections of objects that can be created or deleted, like, let's say, a list of open windows. Or they can have properties, which are sort of like instance variables in a traditional programming language. So an example of that would be the title of a window. Uh, verbs, you can probably guess, are basically functions that can apply to any nouns that you've implemented support for. Um, so the object model specifies a standard set of verbs that developers are expected to implement for their custom objects, or you can define your own. So an example of this is there is an open verb that exists uh, in Apple events, and you can say, oh, well, I created this new kind of object, so I'm going to write a function that handles opening that object and then you can just use open that object and it'll work um so if you hear that and then you think back to when this came out which is 1991 it was very advanced for its time um it's but, funny because it's it is as old as as all of us yeah <laughs> just then <laughs> yep uh so so it's a fresh and young and joyful technologies. That's what you're saying, right? Uh, it's unfortunate that the latter half of this episode is about how Apple Events is old and we should get rid of it. But <laughs> um, yeah, okay. I won't spoil it too much. So there's another advanced feature of this, which is really, really cool. Uh, and we'll mention it a little bit later. And that is something called object descriptors. So if you have a collection of objects, but you want to refer to a specific one, but you don't have a reference to it, you can basically use this thing to query for an object. So an example for this is in AppleScript, you can say set text, style, ah, set text style of every word whose length is greater than 7 to bold. This is an actual example. This shipped with AppleScript 1.0. It works. It's valid AppleScript. I'm not making this shit up. And this is the kind of thing that you would expect out of SQL queries, right? But it's not the kind of thing that you would expect in some throwaway scripting language like AppleScript. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But I think there is some real advanced stuff in this technology that I think is the reason it's been around for so long. Um, but 
even with all of that power there, maybe it hasn't aged quite as well as we would have hoped. The second underlying technology we need to talk about is something called the open scripting architecture. Do you know what this is? <laughs> uh, not really, I'll be honest. Okay, well, it, it's good because most people who talk about it don't know what it is either. Oh, <laughs> come on. No, but, but it's not their fault. So defining what the OSA is is incredibly complicated because the original definition and what it actually stands for now is sort of completely different. And now it's sort of a meaningless word that groups a bunch of unrelated things together. So in theory, and in the classic days, OSA referred to a specification that you could use to integrate scripting languages into System 7 in a standardized way. Uh, scripting languages could implement what are called components uh, that would basically be a standard interface to any scripting language. You could give them access to the Apple Events object model, but it also meant that if you had an application that supported running OSA scripts, then it would run for any language that implemented an OSA component. So that was really powerful. It meant that in theory, uh, in the System 7 days, if you had a script menu installed on your system and you had components for Perl, Python, and Ruby, let's ignore the fact that Ruby didn't exist back then, uh, you could basically just dump all of your scripts into the scripts folder, they would show up in the menu, and you could run them, and they would automatically be dispatched to the correct programming language in the back end. And it's sort of like this hallelujah moment for... All scripting languages can interact the same way. Interoperability, great shit. Um, in practice, that's not really what it is. So if you go look at the documentation that Apple puts out nowadays, um, OSA basically groups the suite of APIs that can manually manipulate Apple events. Uh, these APIs are in core services and carbon frameworks, which, I mean, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth just saying the word par carbon. Uh, there's also scripting additions. Um, which I'll explain in a little bit. Um, Third-party OSA components are still supported in the operating system, but the important note here is that basically no one has made one since the classic days. Uh, there was one popular one in the early OS 10 days called JavaScript OSA, and nothing else. Uh, so OSA didn't really take off as well as people had hoped, which is sort of why the definition changed midway. Um, so what are scripting additions? Well, this is a new feature they added, uh, applications can define new nouns and verbs in their own scripting dictionary, um, but they, you can only use them in the scope of that application when you're uh, explicitly talking to it. Scripting additions allow you to define new nouns and verbs that are accessible across all applications. So it's basically like a standard library you can extend. Um, the problem is they sort of made this and then they realized it's a terrible idea uh, because of namespace collisions. Uh, various applications could define nouns or verbs that would conflict with each other and things would explode. So what they did instead is they said, huh, well, you should build applications that are not really applications that have scripting dictionaries and they only exist to respond to Apple scripts. Uh, so one of, one example of this, uh, I mean, the most popular one is called system events. System events, uh, provides file IO to some degree and it also provides UI scripting. So you can manipulate any application, even if it doesn't have explicit Apple event support, uh, if it has uh, standard Cocoa controls, you can basically go in and manipulate them manually and pretend you're a mouse and keyboard. Um, I have used this in the past. It's not particularly fun to use, but it allows you to script things that are not scriptable, which is the whole point. Uh, image oh, events. That's, that's what you use for your aperture uh, thingy? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Uh, image events is something that lets you do basically anything that the image IO framework can do. Uh, 
except it's exposed as an Apple script scripting dictionary. So you have basically these little applications in the OS that, I mean, you double click on them, they do nothing, but they respond to Apple events for very specific domains. There's also database events, which is an SQL light client, which is kind of weird. You don't think about doing SQL light database manipulations in Apple script, but you can do it. So what is Apple script anyway? Well, AppleScript is merely a syntax layer that makes interacting with the Apple events object model more accessible. AppleScript is an OSA component. Uh, this will become relevant a little bit later, but it uses the same APIs that OSA components from third parties would be allowed to use, um, which is really important. Its syntax is possibly the most controversial aspect of the entire language because it tries to mimic the English language. And this is a problem. It's a problem because if you only use AppleScript occasionally, uh, writing English phrases is unlikely to work, but you're probably not going to remember why it doesn't work. Um, and using script editor, which is the editor that's bundled with the Mac OS, uh, you can look up scripting dictionaries for all the applications you're trying to script, but it doesn't help because you can have the nouns and the verbs correctly, but if the grammar is wrong, and the grammar is wrong in a way that is correct in English, but wrong in AppleScript, good luck finding out what's wrong. Um, so it, it's sort of, it, it's made, it's sort of the opposite of Perl, right? You hear a lot of the joke, jokes about Perl where you write it once and then you can never read what the actual program does. App, AppleScript is the other thing where you write the app once, and then you can read it, and it's supernatural. You know exactly what the program does, but then you try to write another line of code, and it's a syntax error, and you have no clue why. Um, and it's funny, too, because uh, from what I've read in the past regarding AppleScript, one of its original goals that in the end was never implemented was that the code itself could be translated. And what I mean by translated, it could be translated to French if your system was set into French, and then it would make for... Um, co syntax uh, syntactically correct French, so it makes it easier for quote unquote normal users to better understand those scripts because they are in a language they know. That sounds like hell, but yes, in in theory, <laughs> it could have worked that way if they had implemented it. Uh, I'm sort of glad they didn't. Uh, oh yeah, I totally agree. With you on because that too. using Apple Script is often an exercise in frustration because the bulk of your time is spent fighting syntax errors. And most of the time what you do is you search the web for someone else who's written a script using the same application as you, and then you copy their script, and you just change words until it works. Uh, and that is not a great way to write code. Um, I would much rather just write code in a normal programming language. Uh, another thing that does not help uh, with AppleScript's reputation is script editor. So as I mentioned, uh, AppleScript came out in 1991 when we were born. <laughs> and I had the great joy of growing up alongside AppleScript, and I was very bored during summers in the countryside, and I would go around and play with all the apps in the application folder, and one of them was Script Editor, which looks exactly the fucking same in 2017 as it did in 1996, and that is basically a sign of how antiquated AppleScript feels. Under the covers, a lot has changed in AppleScript, and I will go into examples of how things have changed with AppleScript and related technologies in a little bit, but the app you use to write things in, in many ways, is worse now than it was in 1996, which is not good, and there are third-party replacements for Script Editor that are more capable, like Script Debugger is a very popular one. 
which I didn't know it, those were available. I didn't know it was feasible to have a different quote-unquote ID for AppleScript. Now, it's it's definitely possible, and I believe Xcode now works as well. Um, but it's sort of an embarrassment to AppleScript that the main app that people are going to see by default if they try to work in AppleScript is the same exact thing as it was in 1996, in some ways worse. Um, it just gives this feeling that AppleScript is a neglected technology. And I think a lot of people have actually tried to make the case that AppleScript is a neglected technology because of higher direction at Apple. I don't really want to... I mean, I don't know what's going on inside of Apple to do a lot of things uh, to automation technologies. I think that it, it should have gotten much better. I think that, like... You can make the case that script editor is meant for normal users and not programmers, and therefore programmers are going to bitch about it because it's too simple and there's not enough features in there. But it's just a bad program altogether. Uh, and the fact that it hasn't changed in basically 20 years is terrible. Isn't it why they added uh, Apple's good Objective-C? No, that's a different thing. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, first, I need to talk about scripting bridge. So scripting bridge, this thing is fun. Uh, so Scripting Bridge was introduced in Leopard as a means of allowing native Cocoa applications to interact with other applications via app events. Um, so previously, before Scripting Bridge existed, inter-app communication via Apple events could be done one of two ways if you wanted to stick to Objective-C APIs. You could put an AppleScript file in your app bundle and load it via NS AppleScript. Maybe not the greatest solution. Uh, you could use a class called NSAppleEventDescriptor to manually write up your own Apple event structures. Problem is, um, if you're used to writing an Apple script, you're used to interacting directly with the object model, not with Apple events. So now you have to sort of learn how to write Apple events, raw Apple events directly. Not the greatest time. Neither of these were particularly user-friendly. And all of your other alternatives at that time involved dropping down to Carbon APIs, which, again, Carbon, not good. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, you meant Carbon went away, so it's hard if you wanted to do that on the Cocoa we event, took Car so. We took Carbon out behind the shed and we shot it in the face. And uh, Oh, my goodness. Okay. Now we're stuck with these Objective-C APIs that don't really do the job. So Scripting Bridge is sort of this miraculous thing. Well, it's not really miraculous because there are a bunch of issues with it as well, but... At first glance, it's this miraculous thing that exposes the Apple events object model as Objective-C objects, and it automatically bridges to native Cocoa data types when possible. This has a bunch of advantages, and these will be, I mean, it'll blow your mind once you hear these. Standard Cocoa memory management rules are respected. Uh, this was not necessarily a given for, um, well, definitely for the Carbon APS. Uh, syntax errors can be checked at co compile time. Um, this is good. Uh, because, of course, if you give it an AppleScript file, if it's uncompiled, there can be syntax errors in there, and then you don't know until your app crashes. That's not good. Uh, performance is also a big one. So if you have a compiled AppleScript file, it'll run twice as fast as that. If you have an uncompiled AppleScript file, it'll run a hundred times as fast as that. So it's a big deal. Um, you can use a command line utility whose name I forgot, uh, which can export AppleScript scripting dictionaries as Objective-C header files. So you can browse an entire application's object hierarchy as a header file. This is so insanely good. You have no idea because, again, as I mentioned, in AppleScript, you have the nouns and the verbs, but you don't have the grammar. 
In Objective-C, you just write Objective-C and everything is there. On the header file, no confusion at all. It is so clear, it is brilliant. Love it. On top of that, Scripting Bridge allowed developers in other programming languages, like Python and Ruby, to piggyback on top of it to bring Apple Events object model to other languages, which is really useful if you are scripting in other languages. Uh, so Python and Ruby were really the big ones uh, that took off with this. Uh, and the reason I am able to be so positive about Scripting Bridge is because I used it in an application I was developing called Tamayura. It was a utility for syncing non-destructive edit metadata between iPhoto for iOS, rest in peace, and Aperture on the Mac, also rest in peace. Yes, obviously. <laughs> uh, so now you can tell why I never launched it. Um, but anyway, at the time, there were some issues trying to get it to play along with ARC, uh, automatic reference counting. This is sort of a recurring pattern with all of the macOS automation technologies is whenever something new comes out, they tend to be neglected or incompatible with the new stuff for a while, um, which is unfortunate. And I had the silly idea in my head that I was going to prototype the core functionality of my app by writing it in Apple script. Um, of course it will work. Of course it will work. <laughs> Come on. Because I, I was think I was thinking in my head, right? Well, I'll write the core of my app in Apple Script, and then I can just translate it to Scripting Bridge. It'll be super easy, right? The problem is writing Apple Script is a pain in the ass, and it's easier to just write Objective C with Scripting Bridge. So I just did that instead, and my app was like done very quickly. <laughs> so I guess that's a feature. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, but, but there's a big flaw with scripting bridge and, um, the unfortunate reality is there is no good substitute for object descriptors. So the, the first thing is something I forgot to mention is, uh, the Apple events object graph was made in an, in a language, language agnostic way where it doesn't really matter what language you're interacting with it with. There will be a way to bind the two together. What is sort of miraculous about scripting bridge is that Objective-C, and to some degree Swift as well, but that's spoilers, um, both of them are really close to the way that uh, Apple Events object model represents objects. So, for example, uh, Apple Events objects have named parameters, and Objective-C has named parameters, and so does Swift. So it sort of maps really, really well to Objective-C. It's like a good mix. But one of the things that doesn't mix particularly well is object descriptors. So like I said, uh, in AppleScript, you can use expressions like that thing I said earlier with words that are length less than nine. Or you can say window named notes. And I mean, like, that is really cool. And there, you could probably make, like, some kind of plugin for scripting bridge that offers that kind of API. But the problem is, by default, uh, there's no equivalent syntax to that. So you have to resort to using NS predicate. And I mean, I love the power of NS predicate, but... I, it is not really a lightweight syntax that you can use regularly, like on every other line of your scripting. So it's sort of really bulky and heavyweight to use all the time. And the problem is, like, if you're using UI scripting, which I was using in this case, uh, you are often trying to identify objects not by, uh, not by reference, but by saying, uh, go through this list of controls on the thing and the thing that has an accessibility description with this name is my object and now you're looping across your controls everywhere in your code or you're using ns predicate or it becomes a mess to actually identify individual objects in objective c and that is like the biggest weakness in my opinion with uh, scripting bridge is 
it's fine if you have pointers to all of your things that you want to play with, because then your life is easy. But if you don't have the pointers yet, you are going to tear your hair out writing those NS predicate things or looping across a collection until you have the right object. It feels to me a bit like a primitive uh, UI automation strategy, which uh, Apple released a new one recently, and I think it has more like more tools to do what you just said and um, to do your own problem with the this application you mentioned. You had to write those helper methods to say, okay, I go through this list as button and find this. And that is super useful right now and super uh, easier to do with uh, the XCUI test framework for UI automation. But uh, for those low-level APIs you just mentioned, you have to do it by end. Yeah, and unfortunately, like those XCUI helpers aren't going to help in a scripting bridge context where the classes are different and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it just kind of a, an application of the same yeah, uh, yeah. logic, but on a different problem. Right. Uh, next technology on the list is AppleScript Objective-C. So you were mentioning this earlier. You've heard about it in the past, I guess. Uh, Just the name? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I heard about it. I was like, what? Maybe I should use that when no, I No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the only example was like, oh, here's a string from Apple, uh, from the Apple script, and then you can say as NS or NS strings, and you call the method on NS string. I was like, mm, that would be <laughs> useful for NS string. Right. So Apple script Objective C was introduced in Snow Leopard. It lets you interact with Objective C libraries from within Apple script scripts. Uh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So the feature was originally introduced to allow users to develop UI applications within Xcode where all of the code is written in AppleScript. And UI that's, application in AppleScript? Really? Yeah, you, you can use like Interface Builder and shit. Okay, I need to try that. I seriously <laughs> need to try that. Okay. Uh, over time, they realized that people didn't want to do that <laughs> because it's stupid. And then it became a more general technology. Uh, so you can basically just load in any Objective-C library into an AppleScript context and expand the range of what can be done in an AppleScript. That is a lot more useful uh, when you can just import foundation and import AppKit into your thing and just pull the stuff you need. Um, now, here's one thing. Uh, earlier, we were talking about scripting bridge, um, but bridges are generally inelegant solutions to the problem of having cool functionality siloed off in another language. Um, and again, like I said earlier, the reason they're seen as inelegant is because two languages might have two completely different ways of doing the same thing, and translating that to another language can be very daunting, especially if you're trying to make it look native to the other language. Uh, AppleScript Objective-C doesn't have the luxury of being anything similar to Objective-C. Like, AppleScript and Objective-C are very, very different languages, and adapting them looks terrible. It looks like you're using basically, like, PyObj-C in the middle of AppleScript. Uh, it is not fun, and it looks like you're effectively writing two different languages in one source file, which is sort of against the point of writing AppleScript. If you wanted to write Objective-C in your AppleScript, you would just write the Objective-C directly and not have to worry about your English being correct. Um, so the question that comes to mind is, well, who the fuck is this for? <laughs> I mean, non-coders are likely to be frustrated by the lack of documentation, because the problem is, like, if you're looking at API docs for Objective-C APIs, Right now, you're going to have documentation for Objective-C and Swift and basically nothing else. Maybe Monotouch if you're lucky, okay? 
you're not going to have documentation for AppleScript Objective-C. You're on your own. And a lot of the documentation about AppleScript Objective-C assumes you know Objective-C, which again, if you knew Objective-C, you would be writing Objective-C, not AppleScript. So who's this for? Well, I looked around Sal Segoyen's website, and apparently the intended usage pattern for AppleScript Objective-C after they realized that no one wants to write apps in AppleScript is that uh, people who know both languages can write libraries for AppleScript users to do more powerful stuff using AppleScript native concepts. Which is not a bad idea, I guess? But in practice, nobody really does it. So was it really worth having, after all? Uh, it's hard to tell. I, I would say, though, because uh, the reason why I've, uh, I was quite interested in that is recently uh, I had to play with some AppleScript for uh, triaging photos and especially uh, extracting GPS data. And I've realized that to do a simple replace a character in a string, you have to do like a 10 lines function in AppleScript. <laughs> and now that I know that you can just go back to Objective-C and use an string, maybe I will just do that to replace it because it will just become one line. Yeah, that's true. I, I can see that. Um, so, so I'm sure that, like, especially when you mentioned that you can import foundation, you'll get like shit ton of functionality. But maybe just me talking about it in a, uh, just in an ideal world right now, and, and not being a real user of it, that just gives me some uh, pink goggles. I mean, the thing you're saying right now is sort of uh, making me notice a theme, which will come up later, which is. People don't like AppleScript because it's AppleScript. They like AppleScript because of the things it enables them to do. Sort of like JavaScript, right? JavaScript is a language that a lot of people love to hate. Except the reason that they love JavaScript is because they can use it in a web browser to do crazy shit to the DOM. And that is powerful, so that's why they like language. In the same way, people like AppleScript not because AppleScript is a good language, but because they can do stuff within native apps that nothing else allows them to do, really. Oh, yeah, totally. And maybe... Oh, let's keep that for later because I have this. I'll come back to this uh, getting the GPS values of photos uh, idea, uh, script that I did. Okay. Ish. So, one of the things that actually could help you do things that AppleScript accomplishes but without using JavaScript, uh, without using AppleScript, spoilers, uh, is JavaScript for automation, also known as JXA, which was introduced in Yosemite. So, JXA is Funnily enough, an OSA component that wires up Apple's JavaScript core engine to the Apple engine, uh, Apple, Apple events object model. It's getting confusing, lots of words. Um, and so because it's an OSA component, a lot of things comes for free. So the underlying object model is the same. So any application that is scriptable in AppleScript immediately is scriptable in JavaScript. So that is great. Any application that uses OSA APIs for in-app scripting functionality automatically gains support for JavaScript because JavaScript is an OSA component. So this means that basically if you upgrade to Yosemite or later, JXA is more or less a drop-in wholesale replacement for AppleScript in 99% of contexts, which means you no longer have to write badly grammared English to get your stuff to happen. You can now write JavaScript. And if I recall correctly, in the US Yosemite timeline, this is the way it was sold to the general Apple, the macOS users. And it was like, it, we're still like going to work with AppleScript, but here's the future. It is the same. Well, API. it was the future until they fired the team. Yeah, okay, fair. Ignore that statement. But <laughs> what, I'm, what, what I really want to say here is, is like, we know that AppleScript is kind of hard to understand and blah, blah, blah. So 
let's put JavaScript, which most people kind of understand or just use daily, and just use the same powerful tools that is OSA and voila. Correct. Um, so yeah, there's not much more to say about JXA other than it exists. Uh, an interesting note is there's an Objective-C bridge in JXA. However, it is not AppleScript Objective-C. It is a different one. And the semantics are different. So if you've been using AppleScript Objective-C and you are switching to JXA, you might tear your hair out because certain things are different and you have to worry about types more in this one because the types aren't bridges as nicely. Uh, so that is a thing. Uh, <laughs> That is basically all I have to say about JXA. It exists. Uh, it was sort of going to be the future, except maybe not, because the team is gone. So what is common to all this stuff that we were talking about? Well, the linchpin to all of these technologies is Apple Events Object Model. If the applications you're intending to automate do not support it or only expose useless things, the usefulness of those technologies is super limited. And traditionally, scriptability has been rather low in third-party applications. So in the classic days, you had to rely on SDKs to build your applications. Uh, they weren't necessarily Apple's SDKs. And most of the SDKs that were in common use didn't support scriptability out of the box. So you had to do a non-trivial amount of work to actually integrate standard scripting functionality into your stuff. Uh, AppleScript has, well, AppleScript, I guess technically it's Apple Events, has this con concept of what are called suites. And there's a standard suite, text suite, uh, I think they're media suite, uh, which basically are like standard functionality that certain things should implement. Uh, so an example for text suite is move the cursor to the left of this word or stuff like that. Um, so in the classic days, if you had a text box, the text box didn't know about any of these Apple events, and you had to manually wire them up unless you were using an SDK that supported them, which it was, again, uncommon at the time. So a lot of people basically decided not to integrate standard scripting functionality because it was so much work. And some people only did the standard scripting functionality, but then they said, well, I did enough work for that, I'm not going to bother adding custom support. So the usefulness of scripting was rather limited in the classic days. Now, there are some notable exceptions to this, which made a significant difference and is sort of the reason that AppleScript has the, rep uh, the reputation it does today. So desktop publishing and web design applications were amongst the most powerful scriptable applications in the 90s. And what AppleScript enabled you to do was tons of automated workflows, like you could lay out an entire classified ad section in uh, Quirk Express from a FileMaker Pro database. And like that was stuff that like it changed people's jobs because it was so powerful that someone didn't have to sit there and manually lay out a classified ad section. They could just click a button and boom, FileMaker Pro database would automatically be converted into something that can go into the newspaper. Mind-blowing at the time in the 90s. And I think that it's really important to take into consideration that AppleScript for desktop publishing and web workflows at the time was a huge selling point for the Mac because the Mac needed all the help it could get in the mid-90s to survive. And if you can tell people, hey, we are not only really great for desktop publishing because we have top-tiered font support, but we also have automation which can do your job for you in like 15 seconds, you're like, hell yeah, I'm going to buy a Mac if I'm in desktop publishing or in web design. And I think if AppleScript hadn't been there for those professional customers, Apple might have gone under. So I think there was definitely a lot of importance to AppleScript at the time, even though it was not supported by most applications. It's just that the correct application supported it very, very well, and that made all the difference. OS X changed things a little bit. So 
the difference with OS X is there was a standard user interface uh, set of widgets called Coco, and you could generally use it to increase the scriptability of your applications because Apple could bake the scriptability right into Coco, and there was no more issue. You didn't have to worry about basically like Code Warrior updating their code to support AppleScript. Um, so for the most part, no real work needed to be done on the behalf of third-party developers to support the standard stuff. And that means that now developers can only focus on introducing custom scriptability to their applications, which is a great idea in theory. But the question is, who bothers to add custom scriptability to their application? And if you look at Apple, even in recent years, they've gotten way less disciplined about providing good scripting dictionaries in their applications. Yeah, if I, was, I was about to say, not even Apple is doing it sometimes. And a good example of that is iWork. Exactly. When they updated to have feature parity with iOS, they basically stripped out all of the Apple script scripting dictionary, and they have since restored a lot of it. But it's not very encouraging when Apple, who basically puts these technologies into their OS, doesn't even bother supporting them. Um, and if you actually want to implement things into your applications, documentation exists for these APIs, but they feel buried and abandoned, and that's not really good. And what perception is that supposed to give to developers that are thinking about including scriptability? Um, one thing that you see a lot is long-time Mac developers tend to value scriptability way, way more than new people. Uh, one of the things that really tilted me a couple years ago was Brent Simmons. Uh, there was a blog post somewhere. I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe Marco. Uh, they were writing about how much of a pain it is to use AppKit and how UIKit on the Mac would be great. And one of the things that Brent Simmons said was, well, I guess it could be great, except how would you do Apple scriptability on UIKit? And I was like, are you fucking serious? It's not 1996 anymore, dude. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that as an article. I was yes. so angry. I mean, I had to stop looking at Twitter for a week. It made me so angry. Uh, so, yeah, long-time Mac developers value scriptability. And it, it sort of shows if you look at who does it. Like, Brent Simmons used to work for Userland Frontier, which they had their own OSA component. So I sort of understand where he's coming from. Uh, they were one of the few people in Classic who had an OSA component. Um, you had Omni, which, I mean, technically Brent Simmons is working there now, but they were all, always invested in AppleScript to begin with because they're long-time Mac developers. But new developers don't really get exposed to AppleScript much because most applications aren't scriptable, nor do they really have the expectation that apps are going to have a scripting dictionary. And because the number of developers that support scriptability feels like it keeps dwindling, then the value of those automation technologies keeps dwindling as well. And I, I guess I don't really need to mention this because it should be obvious by now, but Apple Events Object Model isn't available on iOS because all of the plumbing it, de it depends on is absent on iOS because it dates from System 7 and no one with their right mind would actually bring that stuff to iOS. So this is where we enter the speculation zone. And I'm going to lay out my theory for, first of all, what is going on inside Apple with regards to their scripting technologies and where they could go. So my speculative theory is Apple wants to consolidate its frameworks and core technologies into a lineup that can be consistent across most or all of their platforms. And the core here is messaging technologies. So this won't seem obvious until I explain it in detail. So since its introduction in Mountain Lion. The macOS team has been slowly rewriting parts of its subsystems so that inter-app messaging is done solely through one mechanism, XPC, instead of whatever protocol they were currently relying on. Now, Apple events are also a method of inter-app messaging, except it dates all the way back to System 7. 
there is no way Apple is going to bring Apple events to iOS when they could rebuild it atop a more modern infrastructure like XBC. On top of that, in Snow Leopard, about half the Apple events APIs were deprecated. So if you don't believe that Apple events are an evolutionary dead end, I'm not sure what to tell you. And it's not really a secret that people aren't fans of AppleScript itself. They're fans of what AppleScript can do and allows them to do. That nothing else really enables them to do except JavaScript automation. But underlying that is the same technology, which means it's sort of a dead end. So if you have this existing creaky architecture that people aren't thrilled with, why wouldn't you tear the whole thing down, rebuild it with a modern foundation and a language that people actually like? And, and not only that, I would say it is a modern technology that you kind of write once and apply to all of your current platforms. Yes, there's that as well. And there's another sort of issue that would be fixed by moving to XPC, and that is app sandboxing. Because scripting for, I think, one or two major versions of OS X was broken on sandbox applications because it's a security hole. You can basically use scripting to look at what another app is doing, and that would be bad. So it took them a while to actually get scripting to work within the sandbox in a way that is not completely a security hole. But sandboxing and privilege separation are central pillars of XPC's design from the core, so it fits in very well with the iOS security model, and it fits in well with the security model that Apple would like to see adopted on the Mac, but probably won't because sandboxing on the Mac kind of sucks. Um, so how are they going to do this? I have two possible solutions, and the fun thing about them is both of them can, ex it can happen at the same time. I said at the beginning of the episode I would talk about Automator, and this is where Automator comes in. So Automator is super interesting. I'm going to give a brief overview of it now because we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, a lot of people consider it to be related to AppleScript or Apple events. The truth is it's not, which is surprising. Um, in practice, Automator is just an application that lets you put together workflows visually in its user interface um, by dragging what are called actions into basically a sequence that it's a pipeline that goes from the top to bottom. So the input of one is the output of another that can go into another block and another block. And it basically is a big pipeline until you get your result. Um, you can save them out as workflow files, which you can run in the uh, in the Automator app, applets that you can double click, or services, which we will talk about in a tiny bit. Uh, and the original pitch for Automator uh, to developers was, it was sort of weird. Uh, you could sort of see the personality of the user automation team come through in how they explained it because they said in the future you're no longer going to have to go to apps to use the functionality that's inside of apps instead apps are going to present their functionality as automator actions and you'll be able to go to automator and only use the app, the parts of the app that you need and not have to look for them in the user interface this is not a great thing to say to people who like using apps because if you like using apps and are familiar with that metaphor, the idea of I'm going to go to this place and look at a list of all of the dictionary of stuff that this app can do and pull out the one thing I want to do and put it in this block, it's sort of weird. And I mean, it works if you're trying to do batch automations on a bunch of stuff, but it's sort of awkward if you're trying to do a one-off thing. And I mean, like the example I can think of is I have no idea how to combine PDFs in preview. I know it can do it, but I forgot how. And it's just easier for me to go to Automator, drag combined PDFs into the thing, and it does it there, right there. So I guess that's what they were trying to go for. But yeah, for a long time, I used to have a service that was created from Automator to just combine PDFs. 
yeah, I mean, that that is like the only thing I use Automator for, which is kind of sad. Um, but it, it's sort of an example that anyone can relate to. Um, so yeah, the pitch was applications, you could bundle your own Automator actions that would populate the actions panel. And then anyone who wanted to automate your application could just drag those things out into the thing. And you didn't have to worry about grammar because you're not writing code. You're just dragging puzzle pieces into the box. Great idea. Way easier than Apple Script. No required coding knowledge. Um, if you were a developer and you wanted to make an automator action, you could either create an, uh, an automator action that was native code that could do something by itself, or you could just call using Apple events to your application and get information about the current state of the application if it's launched. Um, if an automator action for uh, didn't exist for an app that you wanted to manipulate, you could always use the shell script or Apple script automator actions to run arbitrary code in the middle of your workflow. Uh, the, the downfall of this, of course, is you have to know those programming languages, but it gives you the flexibility to resort to arbitrary code when you need it. Um, the unfortunate thing is sort of like Apple script scripting library, uh, scripting dictionaries. Uh, automator actions weren't bundled very often because the developers that tended to value scriptability would rather just offer Apple script scripting dictionaries because they're more powerful. Uh, which is, I mean, I, I understand that you want to put your resources in the most powerful thing for your script users. Um, but it still sort of sucks that this technology basically, one of the reasons it didn't take off is because nobody sort of put their app stuff in there. Uh, now I said you could save workflows as services. What are services? Well, services are a technology that dates back to the next days. And in practice, it's very similar to the OSA script menu in that it shows you a list of services that are globally installed on your system, um, but they're completely separate from what are considered to be scripts. Um, services can register for various data types, and if you select something in an app and run a service, it will gain access to a special clipboard, which is the entire means through which it interacts with the parent process. So whatever you had selected in the application becomes copied on that clipboard, and then if your service pastes into that clipboard, that replaces whatever the selection was in the other application. So it's sort of like being able to call pipes in your shell scripts from anywhere in a Cocoa application. And this is like natively supported in the text uh, controls. Uh, if you highlight an image in an image well, it does the same thing. Like this is pretty cool. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's basically the same thing as action extensions in iOS. Uh, but you know what else is similar to action extensions? Automator actions. Um, so it sort of made me wonder, why are automator actions and action extensions separate things? Why can't an app extension on the Mac register itself as an automator action and then automatically, boom, you've just recycled something that already exists into an automator action? But why can't I take it further and say, well, I made a workflow that uses multiple apps action extensions. Why can't I export that, uh, export that workflow as an extension? And if everything is an extension, then you don't need to maintain separate architecture for what's an automator action and what a service is. Everything just becomes an extension point. And on top of that, app extensions have been in production since iOS 8? 9? I forgot. Uh, 7, 8? Something like that? God, we're oh, old. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> Wait. The uh, in-app action extension? Yeah. So the one you can you add, uh, your app could add by itself only in the app context was iOS six, but the one exposed to other applications were with extension points were iOS eight. Right, iOS eight. Right. So 
App extensions have been used for a while. People know how to use this API. People are heavily incentivized to use this API because it makes their application appear in other applications. And it's battle-tested. Most of the bugs, I'm not going to say all, most of the bugs have been fixed, but most of the bugs have been found with those APIs. <laughs> <laughs> I love the distinction you just made. I love it so much. <laughs> and uh, it's just an API that is much more useful to the average developer than what is currently available for automation elsewhere. So making Automator revolve entirely around app extensions as a backend would not miraculously make AppleScript obsolete, but it would be far more useful than Automator is today, and it would have much more modern underpinnings because app extensions are built on XPC and all that stuff. It would be incredibly useful on the Mac, but it would also be relatively simple to expose the same functionality to users on iOS, which unfortunately would Sherlock the excellent workflow app, uh, which got a great update today that makes writing complex automation much simpler and i can't wait to play with that um, oh yeah me too i think i will be able to simplify a lot of the workflow i have to publish this exact uh, exact podcast right because all uh, all of our podcast uploads are done via well not uploads but most of the preparation we do for yeah, the podcast yeah, totally. to go up is done via workflow um so yeah, I think it would be a really powerful solution to the Automator problem, where right now Automator is not very useful and it has been very neglected for several years. And I think this would be a good way to sort of revitalize Automator and make it more modern. Um, Sal Sogoyan wrote an, an excellent post on Mac Stories about how app extensions aren't a replacement for user automation, which is kind of weird because I just said you could use app extensions for user automation. What is going on? Um, so at the end of his post, spoilers, he proposes that there could be some kind of cross-platform automation kit that allows a lot of the things I described. Um, but I think that Sal, unfortunately, has too much attachment to the existing technologies for OS Town Automation. Uh, for example, he recommends that there should be an Apple's, Apple Events bridge on the Mac. And if you are getting rid of Apple Events, there is no reason to have a bridge because it's not going to be there anymore. But I don't think he wants to get rid of Apple Events, which is maybe a problem, depending who you ask. Um, Though, but... The Maybe I'll stop you there for a sec. And it's regarding his first paragraph on that article. And it's kind of the hypothetical world where Apple is maybe thinking about building, te uh, creating teams that they can build a product that is working on both the Mac and iOS. And I think this article, and I think this is the point you're making right now, is he's not solving that exact problem. Is we want one team working on iMessage, for example, while also making it more user automatable. And since there's no user automat uh, automation tools on iOS, this becomes a big problem to prioritize in one team because obviously there will be bigger priorities than aut user automation. But if user automation was both avail uh, was available on both platforms you need to support, it is easier to justify it. Oh, definitely. Um, but yeah, so I, th I think he has too much attachment to today's technologies to realize that if app extensions become the primary building blocks for user automation, or at least in the context of Automator, things could be a lot better than they currently are. So do you have anything to add on this approach before I go to the second approach? No, it is super interesting. And you're right, it could recycle some stuff. And while you were explaining it, it reminded me of, remember the, I think, I was, I was not sure if it was a rumor or if it was more like, anonymous tip that was explaining the past but remember when people leaked or said the rumor that uh, the iphone os team 
was maybe exploring porting the services API to iOS yeah, at some yeah. point. I don't remember if it was around the iOS three or four days, but it, it is during the Scott's first era. It was one of his idea, and I think I don't remember why they ditched it. According to that uh, tipster, but it was interesting to see that they were thinking about bringing some of those feature to iOS. Yeah, I think services, the way it was uh, explained in that leak was whenever you highlighted words with your selection, reticle or whatever, the callout view would have a button that said services, and then you would press on that and you would be given options, which I guess is very analogous to what you can do now, where you highlight text, you click on the share button, and then you have a share sheet with action extensions that can do stuff to text. Oh, totally. Or specific endpoints like you want to edit the photos and it can triggers uh, action extensions. Right. And oh. in many ways, like it's very hard to tell what the distinction is between services and action extensions. They're basically the same thing as I established previously. So it's sort of what we got in the end anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think throughout the years, especially since its inception, we've seen that extension on iOS are growing in power and also growing in context where you can use them. Yep. So that's why it would be really nice to see them in Automator, a wink-wink. Uh, okay, second path. Swift Automation. Is anybody really surprised that I'm suggesting this? <laughs> so, as I said... Not at all. Not at all. As I said, there is a long-documented history of people hating AppleScript as a language. And offering AppleScript, uh, offering JavaScript as an alternative certainly helped appease that. But let's not kid ourselves. It's not like JavaScript is a very good language either. Uh and we heard on that ATP episode that Apple has a grand plan for the world domination of Swift. And the language was created to scale from low-level systems programming all the way down to high-level scripts. So why do automation users on macOS need to learn a language other than Swift? Legacy reasons. Yay, get rid of legacy. Uh, so yeah, if you provide a new Swifty way of scripting applications... Not only does it make it more attractive to existing users of macOS automations that are dissatisfied with the state of macOS automation technologies, but it allows them to deprecate the crufty Apple event stuff and build it on top of XPC. Um, now, if you're listening to this, you may be yelling at your, uh, your podcast app right now and saying, wait a second, I know there's a GitHub project, actually it's on Bitbucket, called Swift Automation that gives you a Swifty interface to Apple events object model. Why wouldn't you just use this? And actually, its developer, Hamish Sanderson, has been pushing Apple heavily to adopt it by submitting many, many, many radars. Uh, and the, I, I don't think it's going to be adopted because fundamentally it's based on Apple events and Apple events has no future. Um, however, it can serve as a good example of what would be possible if something like Apple Events object model was recreated on top of XPC and given a Swift interface. Now, this theory about what Apple could do to provide Swift automation is much less complete than my automator one, because I'm not convinced that that is the best approach. Um, if you just basically repackage an Apple Events object model-like approach on top of XPC and using Swift, would developer support be any better than it is today? I honestly have no idea maybe the reason that developers aren't adopting it is because they don't relate with that model or they would rather do things a different way. And uh, nothing comes to mind at the top of my head right now, but there might be better approaches that should be explored than just reinventing Apple events on top of XPC. 
Yeah, and I think also part of that second solution, um, putting the swift sauce on it is also helping uh, putting marketing dollars behind that initiative. Because we all know that with the grand world plan of Swift, it has some push at Apple. So may I also bring some priority to that uh project if it were to be uh, pushed. Right, because there are a bunch of advantages to going with Swift. Like the first is, if you provide a native Swift interface uh, to automation, you effectively remove the need for a scripting bridge because both apps and scripts could use Swift and they would have the same API. So automatically, like, you no longer need to maintain, well, you do for Objective-C users, but you don't need to maintain scripting bridge anymore because it doesn't exist anymore. Everyone uses the same interface and it's effectively the same API. Oh yeah, and, and like you demonstrated with this episode, user automation had a lot of bridges in the past and they were not perfect. And uh, like you mentioned, bridging two systems that are somewhat different will never be perfect. Correct. So by removing it, you just remove a big portion of future problems. Right. Next advantage is the Swift you learn when you're automating stuff wouldn't be throwaway useless knowledge like AppleScript because AppleScript is only good in a single context and Swift has a bright future across multiple domains. So if you learn script, uh, Swift writing like a dumb script that like uh, pauses your iTunes playback and uh, opens an application or something, well, the Swift you learned writing that script is exactly the same Swift you would be using to write a web app in a server-side Swift application or to write an iOS app. So it gives automation power users a much clearer path to becoming true app developers if they desire to become one. And I think that's really powerful. And combine that with stuff like Swift Playgrounds and all that stuff, you've just basically got like a ramp up from zero to developer that also, I mean, it's not just an education product. It's also something that's actually genuinely useful to people in their everyday lives. And I think that is... a that sort of is one of the reasons they should invest in something like this. So that's basically my pitch for the Swift automation thing. Uh, I, I unfortunately do not have much more than that uh, to give you because, well, first of all, I sort of finished these notes very late today, <laughs> so I didn't really have the time to write anything else, but it's also that I haven't really had the time to put more thought into how a Swifty interface to user automation should look given that I'm not sure that just recreating Apple events, again, is the correct approach. No, and I think both solutions you just proposed could be, uh, like, in the long run, maybe the solution is an hybrid of both approach you just mentioned. And they're compatible because they're not stepping on each other's stuff. No, exactly. You could have something based on XPC and Action extensions and the old extension framework that is also, like, you strongly suggested that you should write it using Swift. Right. Yep. So that basically sums up my my crazy fever dream through the uh, Apple macOS uh, automation technologies. Um, it was a shorter episode than I anticipated. Uh, it was just an hour long, uh, if you exclude follow-up, which is pretty nice. Um, and I hope you at least learned something today, because I learned a lot, even as a user of these technologies, writing these notes. Um, but I think, like, there's a lot of very interesting technology. And I, I think I'll leave on this as the conclusion is I think, and I don't want to necessarily project what I think the automation team was thinking that led to maybe them not moving forward in a direction that is more modern. But I think it's easy to look at everything that is built on top of Apple events. And you say, 
hey, we have a 26-year-old framework here that is super powerful, enables unprecedented amounts of automation in these applications. I mean, like, look at Windows, and Windows doesn't have this shit. Uh, I've looked at UI automation on Windows in the past, and it's sort of a train wreck. Um, and I think AppleScript enables things that are still hard to compete against uh, automation-wise on other operating systems. But the problem is, like, the third-party support just isn't there. And you can still look at the technology and say, we build this stack, the stack is super robust, it can do tons of things, why do you want to tear it down? And I think like the perfect analogy to this is the 30-pin connector and the lightning connector. The user automation team built a 30-pin connector to connect apps together, and 26 years later, there are complaints about those connectors that sort of mean that it's time to switch the connector on people, and people are going to be upset. Uh, I mean, like people are upset right now because everything I said today... Uh, for the latter half of the show, has been speculative. We have no word from Apple about what is happening about user automation. And I think that's sort of what caused some of the panic uh, around it. Oh, yeah, and who it. knows? Maybe they are they are ready to ship that cross-platform user automation framework that will be the magic thing that we were waiting for on the Mac and on iOS. Maybe it's already ready and it just like... They're, just, they're like, just waiting for WDC. <laughs> maybe not just waiting for that, but they are also like on the final run of trying to finish some bugs and making sure it's part of the release and blah 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 you see where i'm going with this is we don't know it might never come it will it might come next week we just don't know and this is where it got people speculate so much when people don't know what they have they love to do is just speculate about shit but just like when apple switched the lightning connector and like it was like basically a dozen years after the 30 pin connector was introduced people were acting like if like the connector was invented yesterday and oh now i have to buy all new cables when in reality they've had the same cables for 13 years and in reality it's not that big of a deal if lightning lasts another 13 years then congratulations you've spent on cables exactly twice or something like that but uh, i guess the analogy doesn't really live up when it comes to cables <laughs> but it does not because we all know that uh, either 30 pin connector cables or lightning cables won't uh won't resist for 13 years 30-pin, I have a few that did, but Lightning, mine have mostly died within a year or two. Um, but that, anyway, that is completely unrelated to <laughs> what we were talking about, which is I think a lot of people have a lot of pride in the stack that was built on top of Apple events because it is very capable and it can do a lot of things. And I think they look at the, the future and they are concerned that, that stack needs to completely go away because it doesn't work in an iOS future. It doesn't work in a future where Apple events doesn't exist. And instead of going in the new direction and saying, how can we do something like we did with Apple events, except better and more modern, they were like, no, we're clinging to this technology. And I think maybe that is what led to them being subtly removed from the Apple campus because that's not the direction that Apple wants to go and they want to have a consolidated stack across all their platforms. And we're going to see if user automation is a part of that stack someday, I hope, or maybe not. And we'll live in limbo forever and we'll never have user automation on the Mac ever again. Rest in peace. Oh yeah. I personally do hope that in the somewhat future, we'll be able to follow up on that episode and to talk about iOS even more and user automation. I sure hope so. Good. Uh, if you want to see all of the 
show notes that Enik mentioned throughout of this macOS automation episode, you can find the show note for this specific episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 57. If you want to catch up on our other episodes or see all of our other show notes for backlog of nearly two years, you can go on limitlesspossibility.net. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at, at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You really, really, really want to follow the episode on Twitter, especially if you want to know when is our Yuri on Ice special. It's coming. Don't worry, but follow us on Twitter. You can also find myself on Twitter at, at @lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you can find Yannick at... Sakurina, S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. See you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.